Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. In this special edition of Business Class, we remember Sidney Rittenberg, who passed away at 98 years of age. Sidney became a close friend to the people at the USC iBear MBA program. Dick Drobnik, director of the program, begins the episode. I want to talk a little bit about my friend Sidney Rittenberg, who just passed away after 98 years of vibrant, vibrant, exciting life with himself and with his lovely wife, Yulin. So Sidney was a person of great intellectual capacity, uh, great humor, and, and great fun, and always a delight to be with. Um, so Sidney, once again, thank you for being a, a, a friend. Thank you for being a, a teacher to me. And thank you for all your warmth and, and enthusiasm for life. Business Class spoke with Sydney in 2014. In memoriam, we want to return to this interview to present his unique view and experiences. Sydney spent 30 years in China and spoke fluent Mandarin. In China, he was known as Li Dunbai. My name is Sydney Rittenberg. I Li Dunbai. He was present at the beginning of the revolution that brought Mao to power. It came to pass for Sydney that being this close to the new leader of China was a benefit and a cause for great despair. We began the interview talking about power. Well, there are different uh, takes on power. If, if you read War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace, as, as everybody should, if you, get, if you have the time, you see the portrait of this uh, Russian commanding general, Kuznetsov, who applies his power by really doing absolutely nothing, but empowering his subordinate generals to do their thing, to apply their power. So he enables their power, and in so doing, accomplishes what uh, a good Taoist would call doing everything by doing nothing. On the bad side, the use of power exemplified, for example, in China in the Cultural Revolution, when there were an enormous number of individual power centers. Every gang that could control power in their factory, school, office, institution, or whatever, would exercise dictatorship over everyone who didn't agree with them. So that was an application of power that ended in anarchy, ended in a situation in which no one really had power except the army, which Mao eventually sent in to take over. He turned to power and the U.S. government. As far as our government is concerned, <laughs> we have great potential power which we seem completely unable to apply. We have a Congress which is perhaps in American history the least, has the least accomplishment to its credit of any previous Congress. And uh, one reason is that the people that control power seem more dedicated to opposing and defeating the other side than they have in applying power to resolve our national issues. So we really are in a position of controlling great power, but actually being powerless. 
Sidney was put in the crosshairs of power when Mao received a letter from Joseph Stalin proclaiming Sidney a spy. February 49, I am being taken by a very high-ranking person to Beijing, which is just in the process of uh, being handed over to the communists, and I'm going to be the liaison between my government, Washington, and the new Chinese regime, and I am on top of the world. I am making history. And uh, suddenly we discover that in the little jeep they forgot to bring the thermos jug of tea. So they have to turn back, cross the river, and stop at a little village that I'd never been in, and go inside to fetch the tea. And then the young man who was the assistant and driver comes out and says, Comrade so-and-so is delayed for a minute. Come in and have some tea inside. So I went inside, and all of a sudden, bang! We've been instructed to arrest you. You have come on behalf of U.S. imperialism to sabotage the Chinese Revolution. Me? So the room literally spun around in circles, and I saw stars, different colors. And I could feel something in my head go like, like this, like it was somebody jerked. So that's the way it happened. You don't want to have that experience. Sidney remained in prison, in solitary, until the death of Stalin. He and his wife, Yu Lin, decided to remain in China, and then he was swept up and imprisoned again, this time during the Cultural Revolution. We asked him about that time in prison. Well, the thing is, I used to sit there and think, these people failed to get... And this was later, during the Cultural Revolution, I was arrested the second time. So they have now been in power for 17, 18 years. And not only I am arrested, but the President of the Republic, Mao's anointed successor, is all of a sudden hurled down from the seats of power and hounded to death, really. But I didn't know he was dead yet. But I used to sit there and think, they don't get one very important point, and that is if the law doesn't, isn't secure for everybody, it's not secure for anybody. You can be the number two guy in this whole enormous country, but you can be overthrown overnight. You have absolutely no recourse to appeal or to argue it or anything. You're, you're, you're gone. It's like we heard Colin Powell say a couple of years ago, he's a wonderful speaker, about the experience of leaving government. He says, one day you have a private plane and a limousine and courted everywhere. The next day you're nothing. <laughs> That's right. The fact that as powerful as they were, nobody was really ultimately secure. Whereas the smallest individual in a well-administered democracy is protected by law against the, the president, as long as it works. Dick Drobnik noted that Sidney never let his time in prison stop him, and describes how Sidney came back from this devastation to become a leading international business consultant. 
One of the things Sidney said when we met early on, he said, you know, I'm kind of a lucky guy. I had six years of free room and board given to me by the chairman of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And then after 10 years uh, out and about, and I had to pay my own rent now and buy my own food, uh, the chairman gave me 10 more years of free room and board. So the first time he did this was because Joseph Stalin accused me of being, of being a, a spy. And, and so the great thing for me was that Joseph Stalin died. You know, he died in 1953. Now, it took Khrushchev three more years to go through the records, and, and Khrushchev finally sent a note to Mao in 1956 saying, you know what, Stalin was wrong. He was not a spy. So I was very happy with that. And then the second great death that helped me was the death of Chairman Mao in 1976, which then led to my release uh, a few years later. So these two deaths are very important to, to my life. And he tells that, and he pauses, and he laughs, and he's just... <laughs> Sydney's biggest victory is probably returning to the United States in 1979 and overcoming poverty and isolation. Uh, he and Yu Lin had no money. They were teaching Chinese to different people. Yu Lin was working in a restaurant. Yu Lin was sewing clothes. And Sidney somehow got discovered by Mike Wallace. And, and Wallace brought him on 60 Minutes and talked about uh, China, the China we don't know. And, and then Wallace uh, hired Sidney to accompany him to China. And Sidney could open all the doors. Sidney could get the meetings with people. And I think that was the beginning of his consulting career, uh, which made people like Bill Gates and, uh, and others become his clients. We return to the idea of power and ask Sidney to shift from political to business power. First of all, you have to be able to learn to take power in stride, never to be overawed. He may be the CEO of the world's biggest corporation, you know, he's just a human being like you. So if you deal with him or some of his subordinates, be yourself. Do it as yourself, dealing with another human being. Do not be overawed. We had this experience in practical life dealing with Maurice Greenberg, the, the, the former czar of uh, AIG. He, treat, <clears throat> he treated his division presidents like office boys. He was foul-mouthed, he was arbitrary, you know, but um, we were <laughs> impressed. And we, we dealt with him just like you deal with anybody else. And he was, he was sweet as, as, as honey with us. We never had any problem. I think that's true. I, I can tell you if you want the, my experience. He flew me from Beijing to New York for an interview to decide whether he wanted to retain us as consultants in China for AIG. We were recommended by Henry Kissinger, who was very close to him. But so I was told that I have 20 minutes with the great man. That's it. So they, I, I get in one day. I go to the AIG tower the next. I'm in deep jet lag. And I sit there while he goes through a process of name dropping, one big name after another, how close he was to Kissinger, how close he was to uh, the then 
director of the CIA, and I'm sitting there groggy, and I'm thinking, if I name drop to him, it makes sense. Why is he name dropping to me? So finally, he stops and he says, where are you from? And I said, Charleston, South Carolina. And he said, oh, that's interesting. He said, I was down there not long ago, and I met the chief of police. He's a black man, and he has my name. His name is Greenberg. So I don't know what devil got into me, but I said, Reuben Greenberg. He said, yes. I said, you met Reuben Greenberg? He said, yes. I said, you shook hands with him? He said, yes. So I got up and stuck out my hand. I said, that's the first interesting thing I've heard today. Let me shake hands again. <laughs> so, so he glared at me, and his lawyer that was sitting there turned ghastly white. He glared at me for a minute, and then he went, ha, 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 and we never had any problems. <laughs> he told us his first consulting success came from simply being one of the few Westerners that had a basic understanding of Chinese culture. Well, uh, I'm not sure this is a We were, our first consulting client was the USIS, United States Information Service, which no longer exists. This was 1979, Washington, D.C. They were about to produce the first American trade exhibition in China. And it was going to be in Beijing. And um, they had been told by their China experts that the exposition must not use the color red because... Red was offensive to the Chinese. And the fact is, as we explained, red is the color of prosperity, of joy, of celebration. It was fine. We wanted to know why a former prisoner was accepted and respected in business settings. I'm a known quantity in China, you know. Uh, I was there during the revolution. I worked with them and for them. And I was their guest in prison. <laughs> and then uh, we went into consulting business and we're bringing them business. So I'm a known quantity. So I'm like, not a problem. Sidney described his involvement in bringing Levi's into China. We had an interesting case with Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss had negotiated for a year and a half to implement their desire to manufacture uh, 501 genes in China. And they had negotiated for a year and a half with a ministry that had nothing to do with the clothing industry. But they didn't realize that. It was the textile industry, nothing to do with clothing. And we told the, um, the international uh, chairman that you're barking up the wrong tree. These are not the right people to talk to. And they didn't believe it. But they took us along with them to Beijing. And all the way, the regional manager on the plane was worrying. We were going to show up with an outside consultant. They'll be insulted. And I said, Tom, by tomorrow this time, you're going to feel a lot better. So what happened was, all it took, we walked into the room with the Levi's regional manager and the 
chief engineer from the Ministry of Textiles immediately made a full confession before we said a word. Because <laughs> he saw us, he knew the game was up. He told the Levi's guy, he says, actually, we're not in the closing business, but we would like to get into the closing business by forming a partnership with a big-name brand like Levi's. That's why we've been talking. So we had a nice lunch together, and we parted friends, and that was it. But all they had to do was to see our faces. They knew that they couldn't keep it up. <laughs> His most interesting negotiation? I think it was successfully negotiating the first Intel fab in China. And, the, you know, that was instructive. After it negotiated about three days, headed by the, he was the second number two man at Intel, later number one, Barrett. And um, after the third day, the contract signed, so we're walking over to the restaurant to celebrate, and he asks the uh, head man from the Chinese Ministry of Electronics, there was the other, he said, we've been talking for years without getting any place. How did this happen so suddenly? And the guy pointed at me and said, when I sit in the room with this man, I feel like I'm sitting with my own history. So this kind of mystique. But that's not really... The reason is that we really managed to negotiate around the shoals. One of the main obstacles at the end was Intel wanted written into the contract that um, at the end of 10 years they would renegotiate whether to continue the joint venture. And the Chinese wouldn't accept that. They wanted a long-term wholly owned. So during the break, we talked to the Chinese chief negotiator, and we said, look, maybe after 10 years you have your own other ideas. Maybe you want to be wholly owned or you want to partner with somebody else. Why should you lock yourself in? And he said, hey, that's right. So they accepted it. <laughs> Very easy. I'll tell you the truth. Most of the negotiating that we do uses ideas that a 10-year-old child could understand. Nothing complicated. Very simple issues of how to relate to other people. We asked Sydney for a last word. You know, I like the saying of Thomas Paine. That was my underground name in, in the labor movement in the South when the labor movement was underground. My, my underground name is Tom Paine. He said, the world is my home. To do good is my religion. I think that, that's, my, that's my motto. Dick Drobnik brings us one more story that shows how Sydney was revered in China. He spoke of a meeting with Chinese alumni of the USC Iber MBA program. And so we walk into this reception at 7 o'clock at night, and uh, people know me, but they, they don't know him until someone says, that's Li Dunbai. And all of a sudden, all the Chinese uh, alumni just gathered around him because they knew of him in, in story form, but here he was in person with them. And he was just, hey, 
nice to meet you and uh, let's talk a little bit. And it's, it was that kind of uh, uh, humility and, and curiosity that was just always with him. No, there will not be another Sydney. Business Class, expert insight into the world of business. The host, Dick Drobnik, producer, Pankaj Bhushan, director, Dan Griffin, web developer, Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.